The last verse reminds me of the 99% and then 1%. Hundred years ago, and we still, but we need to keep on going. The lives we are honoring today were in the fullness of their ministerial capacity some 20 years before the end of the 19th century. That was the time when the American West was being tamed, transportation was difficult, and the sparse population prevented fast communications. So different from today. Eh? The country in a backlash of masculinity, this was so surprising to me, I didn't know about this, but it was. And under the guises of protecting women, was trying to keep them in the prescribed boundaries of feminine modesty. Anything that they will do out of the home or was considered not appropriate of the energy, the spiritual energy of the women. Living and preaching a liberal faith was very difficult in the ultra-conservative environment created by the religious Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, and Calvinists. These groups, which had arrived to the territories first, considered the Unitarians heretics of the worst kind. The disdain for Unitarians was so great that their businesses were boycotted, they were socially isolated, persecuted, and ridiculed in public. But if the life for Unitarians in general was harsh, life for women aspiring to enter into the practice of ministry was fraught with barriers, some definitely unsurmountable, mostly on account of their sex. Then why and how this group of some 21 pioneer ministers known as the Iowa Sisterhood, came to be? And why did they flourish, especially in Iowa and neighboring states? After all, the holy seat of Unitarianism was in the East. You know where? Right here in Boston. Where is Boston? Right there on Beacon Street. The answer to this and many other baffling questions can be found in Cynthia Gray Tucker, Grant Tucker's amazing work titled Prophetic Sisterhood. Some of you might have read it. Liberal Women Ministers of the Frontier, 1880-1930. Most of what I convey to you today is based on this work. Very few things here are my original. How the sisterhood came to be in the Wild West rather than in the East. Let me mention four contributing factors. First, the frontier mentality happened to be more tolerant of changes than that of the established communities. Therefore, women who as a whole were denied entry into the liberal professions, here in the wild waste, in the civilized East, these professions were denied here in the civilized East, and they could not practice law, medicine, or dentistry, these, in change, were very welcome in the Wild West. Second, although the Unitarians had created the Divinity School at Harvard, women aspiring to the Unitarian ministry were barred from entrance at Harvard, right there. I cringe reading how Eleanor Gordon, such an amazing minister on her own right, 
was infuriated, observing that with a mere 20 seminarians for almost as many faculty, she, as a female, was not allowed to enroll at Harvard. Just imagine being here visiting, just wanted, thirsting for that, to take some courses there to become a better minister, and she couldn't. Third, the narrowness of Harvard made it easier for the women to grow fond of Midbit Lombard, the Unitarian, at the time, Unitarian Seminary in Chicago. Now is the Unitarian Universalist. This is how Marion Murdoch described this seminary. No traditions to hamper it, no powerful establishment to frown upon it, no desire to play fast and loose with ecclesiasticism. This seminary allowed, me, allowed women to solve the unsolvable problems of ethics and philosophy and to be quite as tenacious over dispute interpretations of scripture. In other words, allowed women to settle the question that ministry is about fitness, not gender. Fourth, the Unitarians wanted to expand their faith to the territories in the West. However, few male ministers wished to risk going far from Boston with low salaries and difficult conditions to start up new congregations. They preferred to stay in the area, and that's how we had so many churches in each, so many churches here in New England. And in fact, Unitarianism was known for a long time as the religion of New England. But not so the sisterhood. Natives of the West and filled with religious fire, they ventured into the territories where in several instances they were able to create and sustain very interesting churches and for long years. Eliza Wilkes, married to a lawyer and mother of six, has been preaching in the backwoods for years with the blessing of both Unitarian and Universalists. When she was called to organize a movement in Sioux Falls, she began holding worship services in her husband's law office. She loved to organize new churches, let them running in the hands of good ministers, and move to establish a new, a new group or society. Although she tried for a decade to settle male seminarians sent from the East in some of those churches, she found them then too academic, unable to communicate with the Western hearts and minds. Worse yet, worse yet were those young men who tried to feed the Boston Bible-based theology to the hungry liberal minds in the frontier. There was a definite uh, division or difference between the East and the West. The East, fed by Harvard and others, were very conservative, very Bible-based, uh, still not too much Trinitarian, but borderline. In the meantime, in the West, these this women and men had been liberated, and they were totally outrageous. They, they still uh, talk about the Bible, but from the point of um, literary and from the point of theological criticism. Worse, um, in Sioux Falls Unity Church, where Eliza Wilkes, that we just mentioned, had been the minister for many years, the parishioners had grown accustomed to the female presence in the pulpit. There seemed to be something amiss the first time the pastor exchanged pulpit with a male colleague. 
the Wilkes's little girl, Queenie, was so totally unprepared and scandalized that she cried out in a whisper to every, that everyone heard, and many repeated for years, look, mama, there is a man up in the pulpit. <laughs> Reverend Caroline Bartlett was the first female minister invited to the church to found a church in Kalamazoo. There, she found a building and a congregation in shambles. There were no regular services and no Sunday school, but leftover bitterness from a, from a quarrel years before, which, has, which had torn the congregation apart. The church's strong conservative faction threatened to boycott her services, but apparently their curiosity, male are curious too, was very strong. Reverend Bartlett's physical beauty, amazing preaching, and administrative qualities soon won them over. And in no time, she had to offer two services. Having broken the feminine stereotype, she could help implement needed changes. Two women were voted to the board of trustees. The practice of church members paying for their pews was terminated, making all the seats unreserved and open to the public. The first time she preached there, the theology of the hymns was in dissonance with her words. So she asked to be consulted on the theology and the music of the hymns for Sunday, to be given the privilege of editing them and requested that the church purchase the up-to-date Western Unitarian hymnal. That seems like so easy and nothing these days, but at that time, that was a major undertaking. <laughs> Mary Safford, the consummate organizer and brilliant fundraiser, was the force behind the Ayobat Sisterhood. She was the minister in Humboldt, in, city, in Sioux City and Des Moines. With her long-term companion, Eleanor Gordon, and with Mary Jenny and Helen Wilson, she organized seven more churches and made them completely self-supporting. She had this theory that a church or a home shouldn't live on borrow money, that you spend what you earn, and if you cannot do more, well, too bad. But she was very successful in fundraising, and she created beautiful churches, beautiful buildings. All through her life, Mary pursued equal rights, becoming in later years the leader of the suffrage efforts in Iowa and in Florida. According to Safford, women ministers had a special responsibility for discarding the relics of an earlier, less evolved era when their foremothers were denied the stature of full, of full human beings beginning with changing the rituals that planted these obnoxious ideas, she excised the word obey from the wedding service because it was demeaning for an adult person to be expected to pledge blind obedience and to be given away like a piece of property. So since then, you know, our Unitarian uh, weddings don't use that word, obey. A parishioner attributed her happy marriage of almost 70 years to hearing Eleanor Gordon preach that simply the work, to work well, a marriage must be a matter of teamwork with neither the husband nor wife running over the other. 
In this, a marriage of equals, the wife was treated as a trusted partner and counselor and kept informed about every aspect of the family's business. In her diary, Gordon wrote that sermons like these were heresy that put the pastor on the defensive for weeks after that. That was, that was totally outrageous to say that man and woman should be equal in marriage. To encourage and honor good parenting, the Iowa Sisterhood did dedication of children, something that male ministers, according to them, too often neglected. They placed white roses in the little ones' hands, sprinkled a few drops of water on their heads, and prayed that each would be filled God's love through the love expressed by their families at home and at church. That ceremony is still with us. Many, many children receiving the, the white rose, the red rose without thorns. And the community is always involved because they believe very much that the community is part of that family, that extended family that should take care also of the child. As with the wedding ceremony, they remove and replace words deemed inappropriate in a ceremony for children, promoting instead the liberal perspective. That liberal perspective was warmly humanistic and strongly imbued with social consciousness. Thus, Gordon taught the children the, the Darwin and Emerson's theories and how to read the Bible with a critical mind. There are so many areas in which the Iowa Sisterhood was very influential and innovative. I don't think I can ever make justice to all that they did just in this sermon. They were very innovative in the way they constructed their churches, their church buildings, keeping it simple style, more in the manner of homes, hospitable to the surrounding communities. In their liberal spiritual humanistic theology, they were, um, they were really pioneers, and they made tremendous efforts against poverty in the settlements in the urban cities. In their fight for equality, they were tremendous also, including crusading for the suffrage and much more. Through all of that, they were trying to overcome the rampant sexism of the Unitarian Association with Samuel Eliot at the head. According to him, what the liberal movement needed was more resolute men, not more women. From 1906, when Rowena Morse was ordained, until 1967, until 1917, excuse me, 11 years, when Clara Cook was able to find a position only because she was the cousin of William Howard Taft, and he offered his help, no woman became a Unitarian minister. Without funds to support their churches and denied opportunities to exercise their ministry, many from the Iowa Sisterhood ended working in other fields. Ours, like most religions, has had its shameful historical moments, and sadly, one of ours was the scornful and oppressive ways with which the then American Unitarian Association treated the able, courageous, determined Iowa Sisterhood. Opening paths into new professions and into new geographic territory where they found their churches, the Iowa Sisterhood saw many of their family or their familiar roots destroyed. 
Many sacrifice the dream of a home with husband and kids, devoting their lives to the extended families that they help create in their congregations. These uh, Unitarian congregations uh, were noted or very famous for being very hospitable, for uh, including many aspects of the community, um, for enrolling uh, kids in the not only in Sunday school, but also during the week in, in kindergarten. Um, in Michigan, I believe the um, uh, Bartlett, the Minister Bartlett, was, um, was having so many kids coming to these uh, kindergarten classes that she, con she convinced the municipality that they should open public kindergarten. And that was another innovation. Other, of course, got married and enjoyed combining happy marriage with a successful, successful ministry. This was possible in great part to the unswerving devotion and love of their husbands. In several occasions, some of these men donated large sums to their churches so that they could pay the salary to their wives. And they even uh, gave money to repair the buildings so that they could keep on preaching. Like the Iowa Sisterhood, the immigrants from another country uh, or even from one state to another are adventurers experiencing, experiencing big changes. The contact with other cultures, with other political systems, with other ways of daily living, including the foods, forms of transportation and entertainment are factors that can help us grow rapidly. When we at least try to understand how others live, how do they see life, what dreams do they have for themselves and their children, we could more readily extend our hearts and touch their humanity. The American culture is being increasingly confronted with the idiosyncrasies of other cultures and change being changed by them whether by having the foreign in our midst or by going to other lands, we are faced with the unfamiliar and at times the incomprehensible to us. These collisions offer excellent opportunities to face our prejudices, to re-examine our values, and to hopefully change for the better. Here at First Parish, we are experiencing little by little the meaning of mi casa es tu casa, my home is your home, as we truly try to open our doors to all. We immigrants from another religion, from another culture setting, and from other countries had ample opportunities to also face our prejudices, to re-examine our values, and to hopefully change for the better. Both natives and aliens had ample opportunities to practice the reverence for the interconnected wave of all existence and for the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And let us not forget the practice of gratitude, the, that quality that allows us to rejoice and to say thanks for the gifts brought to us by other cultures and by other ways of being in this world. The lives and legacy of the Iowa Sisterhood touch me deeply in several aspects of my life as a woman and as a pioneer minister. These women, incurable evolutionists, fully expected their souls to move on from this early phase onto new stages of growth enfolded and protected in divine love. 
I wish that all of our transitions, including our final one, no matter how difficult, be luminous, joyful, and completely enfolded and protected by love. I wish the same for all the people and all sentient beings in the entire world. Amen and blessed be.